Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ironworks Podcast. My name is Zach Grafman. And I'm Pastor Tyler Warner. And today we are getting started with our first series here, or season, or whatever you want to call it, here on Ironworks. And we're going to be getting into uh, the Bible, or canon theology, I guess bibliology would be the official term for it. And Tyler, the first thing I want to ask you is, obviously, there's a lot of different topics we could talk about, and we want to kind of cast a broad net here. Why is it that we chose to start with bibliology, the study of the Bible? Well, very simply, because the foundation for doctrine and belief as Christians and the foundation for behavior is the Bible. Everything that we do, especially as Calvary Chapels, comes from Mm -hmm. the Bible. We read it, we study it, we memorize it, we teach it. And all of our doctrine is going to come from there. So especially on this podcast where we're going to talk about a lot of different issues and a lot of different questions and theological matters, we're going to be holding up every idea to the standard of Scripture and seeking to establish and and prove doctrine by the Bible. So we need to take some time to talk about what that is, what we mean by some of these words when we use them, and to, to really set a good foundation because the Bible is our foundation. Yeah, and I think that foundation thing is important. You know, if if if, if you're going to try and understand theology and how to be a Christian, how to how to approach ministry, how to do all these things, but you start with a poor understanding of what the Bible is and how to treat it, how to use it, what what God intended for it, you're going to get off base really really quick. Um and I think that's why we want to kind of set this foundation correctly and we you you see a lot of times a lot of bad, bad conclusions, you can trace them back to a poor understanding of Scripture, I think, and what Scripture is. So, you know, given that the Bible is God's official record, it's our, it's it's God's message for us, and we need to know how to interpret it, how to understand it. Um, what are some things maybe that, as we're trying to figure out how to think about the Bible, where what is a good place to start for us? Well, today we're going to start with the the attributes of the Bible. Uh, and And obviously, we know that the Bible is a book. Right. It's actually a collection of books. There are 66 of them, and we will be discussing in time how we know that these 66 are the right 66. We right. can, in fact, know that, and we do. But it's the way that God has given us, as you said, an official record. There's all kinds of history in the Bible of what God has done in the past, and this is the official version. This is the, the as we're going to explain in a minute, this is the Holy Spirit-inspired and authorized record and interpretation of God's message. Everything God has said to us is encapsulated in these words here. And so that's what we're talking about when we say the Bible. And it's something that everybody kind of has an opinion on, or at least has thoughts about, or has thought about at one time. But we we want to look at what has been historically and traditionally understood, and also what the Bible says about itself. And the Bible, believe it or not, actually has an awful lot to say about itself. In Psalm 119, by the way, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's it's a couple hundred verses. <laughs> but there's I'm just going to read two of them here. It says, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then in verse 105, speaking to the Lord, of course, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That, that expresses a couple things. First of all, the delight that we ought to have in the Word of God, and also the fact that the Word of God is a guide. It's a light that shines in the darkness to give us the answer of what God thinks about things. 
Yeah, no, and we, as Christians, we've been described, you know, as people of the book, and I, I think that's true. I mean, the, the, for us, the Bible is the book. It's the most important book. It's the the book that we're interested in talking about. And you know, if you, as you guys get to know uh, Tyler and I, you're going to find out pretty quick that the Bible is pretty much what we want to talk about. And if if you ha- we have a question that we don't understand, that's where we're going to go. If we're trying to understand something about God or about you know life or about ministry or anything, we, we're going to approach the Bible and say, well, what does the Bible have to say before we formulate any other idea or come up with any other, you know, way of approaching something, we're going to start from there. Right. And that's an important thing to note right off the bat, because we we hold to the doctrine of the historical Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, which is yep. Latin for scripture alone, mm-hmm. which means what is our authority in the church? It is scripture alone. Right. Now, Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions and and other denominations as well will try to bring tradition and church tradition right alongside the scripture so that it's scripture and tradition. Now, we are very, in many cases, very pro-tradition, but tradition is always to be in subjection to the Bible. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees because he said, you have made your traditions to be equal with the word of God. And we never want to do that. So if we can see that tradition that we carry is firmly established by the scripture, then we'll uphold it. But if we ever find that the word of God has been misinterpreted or misapplied, then scripture is going to win out every time. Right. And we're kind of jumping ahead, but, you know, I just, I I love one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of the Bible, for me anyway, that resonated with me was uh, from Chuck Missler, an old uh, Calvary Chapel pastor who's gone to be with the Lord now. And he um, he used to say that the Bible was, you know, at the intro of his radio teaching show, he would say it's 66 books by 40 authors, and we discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. And I always loved hearing that because it made That's me... nice. I hadn't heard that before. I know, right? It made me, it made me think outside about... outside our time domain. Right. It kind of... It's, 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 it's awesome because you realize that that is why we look to the Bible the way we do is it's not like any other book. It comes literally from somewhere else to us, from God. And if that's true of the Bible, man, that changes the way you approach it. It changes, you know, the way you approach other things through it. And uh, that's that's why we treat the Bible the way we do is because we truly believe that we can demonstrate that it it is in a God's message to us. Um, so, all right, let's, that's kind of our, our beginning. Enough of the intro. Let's talk about these, what we're going to call the attributes of the Bible. What, what do we know about the Bible and what are some doctrines that we can understand about scripture so that we have a good foundation for how to read it, for how to study it, and then how to use that to understand, you know, the rest of our faith. So let, let's start with these. The first one that we have is that the Bible is inspired. That's the first attribute of scriptures. It's inspiration. Right. Inspiration. And this is not like a painter who was inspired and <laughs> and then wrote or painted something or an author who writes something very inspiring. No, this is a very technical word. When we say inspiration, this harkens back to what you just quoted from Chuck Missler from outside our time domain, that this is the belief that God produced scripture, that God brought about the Bible. And we get this from 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. Paul writing to Timothy here, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then here's the money verse right here. Verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we see it in verse 16, and I just read from the English Standard Version, which translated it literally by saying it is breathed out by God. This is a Greek word, theopneustos. It comes from the Greek word theos, which means God. It's where we get the word for theology, or even dios in Spanish comes from theos, meaning God. And pneustos, or pneuma, it's a word referring to air or breath, the with a capital P, not P in Greek, but you know you, that would be the spirit of God, that God breathed out scripture. We even see that in the word inspiration, to spire, like to respire, is to breathe, to breathe in. So when scripture came about, it had a divine origin, that it is not just moving, it's not just something profound, it's not just something that carries us to the loftiest heights of literature or human achievement. No, we believe that scripture has a divine origin, and that is what we mean when we refer to the inspiration of scripture. Yeah, that's a really important point too, I think, Tyler, because a lot of times, you know, many, many people, the Bible is, you know, an ancient book. Everyone understands it or wants to know something about it. And so there's lots of opinions about the Bible and what it is and how to use it. And one of the most common ones that we hear today, you know, you can go to any Barnes and Noble or whatever, and you can pick up a nice binding of the Bible in one of those, you know, the Penguin Classics or those nice Barnes and Noble leather bound ones, which we love. And, and people will encourage you, yeah, you should read this because it's part of the Western canon and it's an artistic foundation for so much of our of our, our culture. And so it's important to understand the Bible so you can get those references and there's some beauty there and it's so inspiring. In fact, inspiring is a word that gets used a lot about the Bible. That's not right, what with a lowercase i, right? Exactly. It inspires me. Right. That is not what we're talking about, right? Those, those things are all true. Is the Bible beautiful? Absolutely. Is the Bible inspiring to you? It, it should be. Is it is it something that's foundational for culture and something that changes the way we look at the world? Yeah, that's all true. But if we claim that the Bible is inspir- it is God inspired, that that changes the book entirely. Now, all of a sudden, we have to pay attention differently when we read it than just, oh, this is so wonderful and, and ancient and cultural and all that. Right. And, and it is all of those things because it is inspired. Yes. That's, that's what we argue and that's what we say here, that the Bible is beautiful because it is inspired, right? We don't say it's inspired because it's beautiful. In fact, right. there are especially portions of the of the New Testament where people used to scoff at it because they said that the Greek was inferior, <laughs> you know, compared to the writings of some of the famous philosophers or poets and or rhetoricians of Greek culture. But it, that's not what it's about. It's the fact that God inspired and and saw to. Let's say it this way: God saw to and oversaw the production of the Bible. And, and that's what inspiration means, that it has come from God and that it truly testifies of God. All right. So I got a question about that then, because this is this is a thing that I think a lot of people get stuck up on is when we start to say, oh, the Bible's God breathed, it's God inspired. This is a place where people can have a lot of, I think, bad understanding of what that means. So people will start saying, so are you saying that God, you know, grabbed a hold of the guy's hand and makes him write down these specific letters and words? Or how, how does it work as much as we can understand how it works? Right. Well, this is what you'd call the method of inspiration. And, and this is where, you know, it's a catchy slogan, so I don't want to dunk on it, but where what Missler said is true. But in another sense, it's also half true. Right. Saying that it's from outside our time domain. The Bible was not plunked in our lap. Uh, th- <laughs> that's that true. is yeah, yeah. that is what 
what Mormons believe, for example. Mm-hmm. Mormons right. believe that Joseph Smith was handed these golden tablets that had been inscribed from heaven, and he just read them off. He translated them, and somebody else wrote them down. It was an actual, here it is, you just write write it down in your language. This is what Muslims believe about mm-hmm. large swaths of the Quran, that Muhammad was was seized by a by a genie or a demon, we would say, that that caused him in an ecstatic state to write it down. And and that's what some people even think we believe about the Bible is that we believe these people were taken over by God and they kind of woke up and oh, look, there's this document in front of me. Well, no, we're actually given for in the Bible what inspiration looks like. And, and so Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, very important section of scripture here. Peter writes to the church, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. There's a oblique reference to that Psalm 119 verse we read earlier. Mm -hmm. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he says, we have the confirmed prophetic word. That's the gospel. Pay attention to it. Why? Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We can just sit on that for a second, can't we? <laughs> right. The Bible says no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that that is so important to know, especially in, in Christian theological circles where people now want to emphasize the the differences among the writings of the Bible, which is not all bad, but it's important to remember that these are not just Paul's ideas. Mm-hmm. These are not just Hosea's ideas or Moses's ideas or David's. This is God carrying along. This is the word Pharaoh, like Christopher, right? Carried along, borne up by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. And, and the fact that Peter is Having to address this is, you know, writing to a Greek culture or to a learned Jewish culture, a Hebrew culture at the time, you know, they would have said, well, your apostles have some great things to say, but so does Plato, and so does Aristotle, and so does Philo, and all these others. But he says, no, this isn't of the old translation, private interpretation. So God carried along these men, but the fact that we need to make this argument is that there is distinction and style and genre and personality in the writings. We believe that the men of the Bible wrote their words down, fully cognizant, fully aware of what they were doing. I can imagine there were revisions and there were second passes until it was considered done. I mean, you read some of Paul's letters. Paul is not just writing out of an ecstatic state when he when he says, hey, bring me my coat that I left because right. it's cold here in prison. You know that He didn't wake up out of a dream and had this written. Now, there are plenty of places in the Bible where there were ecstatic states. The book of Revelation is a, is a big yeah. one. Ezekiel is another big one. But in, in those scenes even, you see God telling them, write this down. He's calling upon the agency of the men to write this. So what we believe in inspiration is that God used the writers with all of their vocabulary and their history and their personality to write the writings that we have. And we believe that God is sovereign enough to oversee the process, to fill these men and carry them along by the Holy Spirit, that even as they write in their own style and in their own vernacular, that it was God's word being written. Yeah, and I kind of want to point something out too. 
when we're talking about inspiration, and you're going to see this throughout all of these attributes of Scripture, already we're talking about something that we believe is a spiritual process. So we pointed out that this is, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is overseeing and inspiring, carrying along these men. So if you're going to come to an understanding of Scripture, we believe you're not going to be able to come to that understanding from a purely materialist, scientific, textual, critical, historical perspective. Now, are there great things to learn from textual criticism and history and the culture of the Bible? Yeah, we yes. we believe that, and we're going to talk about all those things, I'm sure, at length. But here's the thing. If you want to understand the Bible, and as soon as you start talking about, well, here's the spiritual background of this, you kind of scoff and say, no, 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 that, that that's all mumbo-jumbo. Get me to the actual text. We believe as Christians, and I, I will go ahead and boldly say, you must believe as a, as a Christian— that you're going to not understand the Bible without the spiritual understanding of where inspiration comes from. Um, and, and that's a really important point. You know, you can't take that away and still expect to get the Bible, understand what it is. And honestly, I don't, I think it's, you, you're not going to be able to understand Christianity at all. If when someone says, Hey, the Bible was inspired by God's Holy spirit, you start to say, Hmm, I don't know. Well, this is what we have to offer you, you know? That, in fact, is what Jesus said to the apostles. He said, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit, and he will guide you into all truth. Yeah. First Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 2, says, The natural man cannot receive the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. So this is why you can see some people that are, are not believers, and the claims they make about the Bible seem kind of wacky to those of us in the church. Yes. It's because they're not being led by the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that they can't accurately break down grammar or an- analyze figurative language or, or that kind of thing. But to grasp the, the heart and the meaning behind it, I mean, that's, that's a spiritual process. Yeah. So what this does, knowing that God inspired Scripture, but that men wrote Scripture down and that God used them... This does not negate the humanness of these men that wrote. Right. And what this allows us to do is to study the Bible in one sense like we study any other book. Because this is not to be read as as Origen and others in the Alexandrian school said in church history that, no, the words are just concealing the truth. And you've got to get beneath <laughs> the human words. And people will say things like, God can't let his great majesty be bound by words. To which I say, why not? God his son was born in a manger, you know, I'm God. And in fact, that's a a classic analogy of what scripture is, is that just as Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man, scripture is 100% divine and 100% human. Hmm. So you can look at, Hmm. and you can see Paul's personality coming through. Yeah, you can. You can see, you can see Nahum's personality (laughs) Mm -hmm. or David or, you know, Jeremiah's the weeping prophet. But then you know, you got other folks like Jonah, who was not a weeping prophet. Right. He was the angry prophet. And, you you know, Jude and James write very similarly. Well, they were brothers. They came from a very similar background. Paul was a learned man. And he wrote in a very, very structured and very logical and, and deep style. And, you know, John and Peter write very simply because they were simple men. But you know, even in the quality of their language, you know, Luke, for example, and whoever the writer of Hebrews was, write in a very elevated Greek style. But the rest of the scripture writes much more so in what's called Koine or common Greek. So you can see that. And this enables us to study the word, but knowing that what was written was in fact from God. It was inspired of God. Yeah. So 
what would you say, uh, what's the takeaway for us in the way that we can understand and treat and handle scripture as a result of this? So, okay, we believe that the Bible is inspired. God has produced it. It's God breathed. It's he's, he's using men to write it. He's not overwhelming their senses or, or destroying, erasing their personality and their culture and everything. But he is the in, in a sense, the author, he's ensuring that what is written is his word. If that's true, then, okay, how do I, what, what can I say about the Bible or what can I know about the Bible because of that? Well, I think what we saw from Peter, right? He said, you will do well to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this is God's word. And so many Christians believe that. Most, all, I would say, just about all who are true believers believe that. Well, you best sit up and pay attention. Yeah. You're holding God's word in your lap. The New Testament writers will will quote from David or Isaiah and say things like, the Lord said, or right. the Holy Spirit said, or God said. And this is the word of a human, but they recognize that this was, in fact, the inspiration. So we believe in the technical term here is plenary verbal inspiration. Mm-hmm. Plenary means all of it. <laughs> it's related to the word for plentiful. So there's no section where we go, well, this part's not inspired, but right. this part isn't, you know. Uh, that's that's not what we do. Plenary, verbal, which means the words themselves were inspired. Mm. So this is not that, well, yeah, the ideas were from God and then they wrote the words down. No, no, no. It's all inspired. Yeah. Paul will will make doctrines out of the the tense of a verb sometimes. Like we believe that God put it together the way he did. And that's how we ought to read it and understand it. So you don't come to the Bible, and we're going to get into some of these other uh, extrapolated uh, attributes as well, but you don't come to the Bible with arrogance or pride. You come to the Bible on your knees right? because it's God's word. If God were to speak, how would you respond? Well, he has spoken, and it's it's that book sitting in your lap. Yeah, and, and I think we can also, you know, if as we're looking at these attributes of Scripture, if, if the Bible is God-breathed, if it is from God— then it, it then God's attributes right in a certain sense can also be applied to scripture oh right? yes meaning meaning like so if God is truthful well then his book his word is not going to be untruthful if God is faithful if God is constant and unchanging if you know all of those attributes of the Lord they can be applied to scripture you, you in other words we shouldn't be expecting that God's word is going to be changeable or or contradictory or you, you know, it's inscrutable. We just can't understand it. Well, that's not who God is. So we shouldn't expect his word to be that way. Right. And this is, in fact, we'll talk about this another time, but this was one of the things that led the early church to recognize the canon. They said, if God never lies, then his word is not going to contain lies. Therefore, if there's something that's manifestly false, it's not from God. Exactly. So for example, I believe it was the epistle uh, of first Clement, which everybody in the early church recognized, communicated sound doctrine correctly. But at one point, Clement makes reference to the phoenix as a real creature, as evidence of the resurrection that says God manifested in nation nature. Just look at the phoenix. Well, there are some Christians from that part of the world that know that the phoenix wasn't real. So that was a big part of them saying, therefore, this can't be scripture because there wouldn't hmm. be any, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, errors in it or lies in it if God inspired it. So you know, Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, is not my word like fire and like mm-hmm. a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? You know, there's another scripture that says the it's like a double-edged sword that cuts you open and and it, it has power. It's living. Another right. verse will say that it's alive because God is alive and the author is still alive and he's still speaking to every individual heart. So 
it's not magic. It's, it's godly. And because God is still using those words, then it, it's not like any other book and we can't treat it like any other book. Exactly. All right. So I think we've got, you know, we've talked about the, the Bible's inspiration or we've got it. Well, we talked about it for a while. We'll, we'll continue learning about it for our whole life, but let's, let's move on now. So if, if the Bible is inspired, all right, so maybe I say, okay, that's fine that the Bible is inspired. It came from God, but I still, what if, you know, but are, can I trust everything that the Bible states? Is it all true? Is it all factual? Are there mistakes that are contained in it? So the next, I think, attribute of scripture we want to talk about is inerrancy. Scripture is inerrant. So what is what does that mean that scripture is inerrant? Oh, very basically, it means it's without error. Mm-hmm. About any matter of which the Bible presumes to speak, there are no errors in it. That applies not just to matters of faith and doctrine, that applies to history, that applies as where it may be appropriately applied to scientific matters, it applies to gender it applies mm-hmm. to marriage. It applies to society and morality. But, you know, when it says this many years passed and then this happened, that's what happened. And we we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and this is, you know, this has been always assaulted, but especially more lately. You know, many of those that uh, want to end up deconstructing their faith begin by denying the inerrancy of Scripture and saying things like, we know the Bible's got lots of errors in it. Let's just admit that. Well, no, I won't admit that. We And let me say this very plainly, though, because this is important that you you properly qualify this statement. We believe that the Bible and every fact it claims is true. But I think the best people that have put this out there is called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Mm -hmm. If you've never read it, especially Calvary guys, this isn't really part of our tradition, but we believe every word of it. Go read the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Here's the important thing to know. The autographs of Scripture are what are inerrant. Now, by autograph, I mean the original writings. I mean the piece of paper that Paul signed, sincerely Paul, rolled up and handed to Chloe and said, take this to Rome. Like that is the autograph, the actual first copy, because we know historically that there have been variant readings. So somebody, you know, somebody will be making copies of the Bible. Somebody makes an error in transmission of the word. You know, we've all done that in school. You know, you're taking notes and you skip a line or something, or maybe they just kind of skip over something. It's a long list. So they just include a few things. Sometimes even people thought they were clarifying matters by adding words. Well, Anything that can be shown to be an error, meaning a deviation from the original text, does not carry the attribute of inerrancy. And I think that makes sense. It what was it's what God inspired in the moment that is without error. Right. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure, talk a lot about, you know, textual criticism and how we can trust that despite, you know, the very fact that we can make that statement, hey, we know there are errors of transmission indicates a huge amount of certainty that we have in scripture of what the book said. Right. Anytime you have a footnote in your Bible and it says something like other manuscripts say, or the best versions say that that's part of the process that we're talking about. And we will get into that, but just for the doctrinal sake, when we say inerrant, we refer to the autographs of scripture. And there are those that will say, well, that's a meaningless statement because we don't have the autographs. You know, just to tease a couple sessions from now, uh, we can with very great confidence say that we have been able to recreate just about every word of of the autographs and and the possibilities that remain are so minor that they shouldn't be 
anything for you to be concerned about. Yeah, so, put it this way, you know, if, if you trust any other historical book, you ought to be trusting the, the document that you have in your lap. For sure. Bible. It's, you the, know, it's, it's the gold standard. Absolutely. Man. Historically and, and textually and everything. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Every fact that Scripture claims of it, you know, is true. And like you said, that applies to a lot. The scripture makes a lot of different claims. Now here's, here's one issue that I see a lot. So, and I want to ask you about, so a lot of times you'll hear people say things like, well, in this prophecy or in this Psalm or in this, in this thing over here, the Bible says that the earth is flat or the Bible says some, and they'll pull out some outlandish claim. And let's say, so that means that the Bible is in error scientifically. Now, what, what is the problem with that? When someone is I'll just go ahead and spoil when someone is misreading a little bit the genre of, of a certain biblical passage, why do we believe that that doesn't have anything to do with the inerrancy of the Bible? Uh, well, first of all, when people say everybody knows the Bible is full of errors, my first question is, like what? Right, exactly. Because <laughs> very often they don't have anything to show you. No, right. I mean, the, the flat earth thing, you know, where it says the sun rises from you know one at, from the east and and hastens to its end and goes down in the west. And ah, see, so we know that the earth is round and it goes... And the sun, you know, stays still and the earth is what moves. Well, that's, first of all, that's observational language. We still talk like that. Yes. Everyone, every normal person. We still say that the sun rises and the sun (laughs) sets and no one thinks that you're, you're somehow, you know, you're, you have a pre-Copernican model of the universe here. And also in many of those cases, it is poetic language. Right. Not always, but many times it is. And you, you, the Bible is as a book needs to be interpreted and understood in genre. So you know, when it says things like the Lord will cover you with his pinions and his wings and, oh, so therefore God must have wings. Well, okay, it says that, but it's also saying that in a very poetic, stylized psalm. So you, no one, I don't, I don't know of anybody of any kind of credibility that was going to stand on that and say, therefore God has wings. It's in the Bible. It's, it's communicating something poetically and symbolically and metaphorically. So by saying we believe in the literal inerrancy of scripture, you know, to ter- turn that into some wooden uh, you know, some wooden thing where we, we're not allowed to read genre or understand figurative language. That's, that's just not the case. And I don't know of any credible believer that actually does that. And most of us do it naturally and wouldn't think twice looking at it. You know, it says the Lord who has heavenly storehouses laden with snow. Well, we know that snow is the water cycle and it, and it freezes. Okay, yeah. Actually, that's in the Bible too, in <laughs> right? case you didn't know that. Yeah. You know, Solomon has writings about how the rain goes up and stays in the clouds and then comes back down, which might be the earliest reference we have to yes. the water cycle, for example. But we know what he means right. when he says that, you know, storehouse is laden with snow. And, and you know what? You don't even know what's going on in the spirit. So, you know what? You can just leave that. You know, it's so inerrancy is not attaching us to some wooden. Uh, inability to interpret the Bible, you know, there, there's uh, there's genre, there's style, there's flow that we've got to look at, and and I don't, I, again, I always want to say which one, you know, wh- which one are you talking about? Well, you know, they're everywhere. I don't know that to be true, right? So no, I I I don't let myself be intimidated by that anymore. Yeah, no, and I, I that's kind of why I asked that question. Is you know, I, I think that's one thing you hear a lot, and. and I'll just go ahead and say if, if you're especially because this is something that I've actually when we've spent a lot of time together studying and I've learned a lot from you is the more that you study scripture deeply, the more that you allow good scholars, meaning scholars who actually believe in God, Christians, <laughs> Christian scholars who believe in God and believe in scripture <laughs> and you learn from them. It doesn't decrease your faith in the Bible. It increases it because you, you find out pretty quickly, at least I have, that the people that have those objections they're never coming from an honest 
desire to understand scripture. They're never coming from an honest place. And so those objections very, very often when they come up, you'll, you'll realize, well, wait a second, you didn't understand that verse or wait a second, you, you know, that's not what the, how that should be read logically, you know? And, and I'm, I'm not saying anybody who has a question about scripture isn't being honest. That's not what I'm saying. No, but there's a lot of smug, smarmy, yes, you know, academics that right. love to poke fun at us like we've never read this thing before. Right. And and, and it's, you know, we're going to talk about this a lot, I'm sure, as we go on. But one thing I want to just encourage you, if you're listening to this and this is a new subject for you, and maybe even as we talk about some of this, you're saying, well, well whoa, I never thought about that. Or I, I want to really let you know that I've come to understand that there are people who have spent literally good God, you know, f- honoring believers who have spent their entire lives meticulously studying scripture and then documented that extensively in books that can tell you, yeah, all those many errors that people are claiming that that's just not accurate to, to say of scripture. And they will lay out for you, hey, this is that verse that they, they brought out. This is what it means. This is what it's referring to. Here's the best way to understand that. You can go get these books. They exist. So, uh, you know, just it's easy for you to say on an Instagram post, hey, there are many errors in scripture, but there are people who have tracked all that down and would, would dispute that. Right. Yeah. So to, to, to jump back on the doctrine bit a little, sure. bit, just to, to firm us up on, on why we believe this. So Psalm 119, there we are again, verse 160 He writes, the sum of your word is truth. So that's the totality, right? The sum of your word. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I love that because he's saying the totality of scripture is true and the individual words of scripture are true too. That it's not just, oh yeah, as a whole, the Bible is true, but you know, there's gonna be little mistakes. I'm pretty scientific and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) No, no, no. He comes in and says, no, all of it and the pieces. So not just the whole, but even the pieces. And I, I referenced this before, but let's go ahead and look at this. You we need to know that the words matter, plenary verbal inspiration. The words right. matter, not just the main thrust. There are those, especially in the realm of biblical prophecy, that want you to say, ah, don't look at the details, just try to get the sense of what it's saying. But no, the Bible emphasizes the words themselves. Not only did Jesus say not one jot or tittle will pass away, which tells us that the jots and the tittles matter. But in Galatians 3.16, in making an argument about Jesus, and I'm just going to read the verse, Paul says, now promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. And Paul writes, it does not say and to seeds, plural, referring to many, but to one and to your seed or offspring, who is Christ. So Paul takes this reference from the Old Testament that God says, I will give to your seed singular and Paul goes now why would God say seed singular now we all would maybe immediately go well because it's it's uh, you know it's representative it's it's symbolic and Paul goes no because if he had said more than one this would refer to more than one thing but in fact since he only said one this can only be Jesus Christ so what does that teach us at the most fundamental level the apostles interpreted the old testament even down to what's called the number of the words, meaning whether it was plural or singular, right. and established doctrine by it. So we are in very, very good biblical grounds when we look at inerrancy. We're, we're doing it just like the apostles did it, and I'm, I'm content to let their example be mine. Yeah, well, and there's, there's many, many places in Scripture where you see that the, you know, maybe you disagree with this doc. Maybe you're even a good, you're a brother or sister in Christ and you're sitting here listening to this and you say, well, I just, I don't agree with this doctrine. I accept that. I understand that. But let me just encourage you 
one of the most important things for me to understand when I was looking at this is all many, many, many of the writers of Scripture refer to Scripture as factual and inerrant. Jesus quotes from many, many, many oh, books yeah, of the Old Testament constantly, and he refers to those as as authoritative documents. Paul and you know basically there's there's many, many, many quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament, and they use it to establish doctrine. And so, the New Testament quotes itself too. Constantly, we'll talk more about yeah, that and later. refers to itself as doctrine. So if it, and and is inerrant and is scripture. So if that's let me put it to you this way: if you believe in God and you believe in Jesus and you are a Christian then you need to understand that the people that you're learning from believed this. Yes. The, the, Jesus believed this. He said he acted of Scripture as if it was inerrant the, and, and stated that. You know, the, the apostles and the writers of Scripture said this about the documents that they were writing down. And so if we disagree with them, uh, that to me, I don't understand why you would be a Christian and say, well, I, I disagree with all the people who founded my faith, th- th- what they said of the Bible. That doesn't of, make sense to me at all. There, huh? Yeah. Well, and so I, I just, I want to encourage you that, you know, th- this is that important. And, and inerrancy is something that's becoming very combated right now. Oh, yes. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, there's been a resurgence in, in attacks on this. Yeah. Uh, and, and most of this has come through the Old Testament. The church has done an amazing job of closing ranks around the New Testament in an amazing way. Uh, but the Old Testament, of course, is very different. And, you know, in, in just the way that it's written and in the language is very different, right? Yeah. But especially through, you know, things related to Genesis, for example. Right. Uh, people will say, well, God couldn't possibly have created the world in six days because we know this from archaeology, this from science or whatever it is. So... We've got to come up with these new fanciful interpretations, all of which, the farther along they go, become more and more and more tenuous. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into all this in detail in another time. It's just important that you know that it's happening. But inevitably, that leads to people denying the inerrancy of Scripture. And if you deny the inerrancy of Scripture, then what's to say which parts are and are not inerrant? And then you've all be- a sudden become the judge over the Word of God. That and And every time... People have done this. The, the word will come to its own defense. Like God just brings it up. You know, it used to be you know, things like, well, they, there was no such thing as Hittites. The Bible talks yeah. about Hittites. We've never found the Hittites. There's no archaeological evidence. It was just made up. But then we discover the Hittites, and we discover their culture and their their artifacts and their language, and we're now making books about the words they used, and and that will happen from time to time. Or there's no evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt, and then you start finding evidence about that. Or you know nobody was did Jesus even exist? Who can tell? Well, it, you know the documents of Scripture we find are getting closer and closer to the day of Jesus, and there are other historical records like the it, the Bible constantly shows itself. To, to embarrass people that want to attack its inerrancy. But you've got to look out for that. Those that want to say, well, we don't need to look at just inerrancy. You know, we can just look at the main ideas. And as long as you get those main ideas, then, then it's okay. But there's a warning that comes at the end of the Bible. This is almost the last thing in Scripture. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. He writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them adds to the words of this prophecy. God will add to him the plagues described in this book. (laughs) And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So, pretty big deal for messing with the words of the book. And you could say something like, well, that's just talking about Revelation. It's not talking about the whole canon of Scripture. 
okay, but it also was the last book in the canon of scripture. Right. And if God feels that way about one of his books, does he think, oh, you can mess with the words of Nahum, but you know, but don't touch Revelation or I'll curse you. No, you got to understand, this is God's opinion about his whole book. Don't add and don't take away from the scripture. Well, and again, it, it, these things kind of are connected, right? So if, if the Bible is truly inspired, if it really is of God, well, then shouldn't we expect that it should be inerrant? I mean, just you think about, so so God is going to communicate with us in language because that's what we can understand, right? And that's what we as Christians believe, right? Like that, that God has spoken to us in language because we are, he's given us language, we're creatures who think in language. Okay, so he spoke to us in a way we could understand. Well, if God was going to do that, like even let's just think philosophically for a minute, like why would it be that God would communicate to his beings in language, but he would do it in a way that was flawed or faulty or containing mistakes. Now you're talking about a God who's not good. I mean, honestly, right. so so this is very foundational stuff, and that's why we're speaking very strongly about it. And, you know, I'll just I'll just want to jump back for a minute, Tyler, to the, the archaeology history thing, because that's kind of my bit, my hobby. And, you know, <laughs> honestly, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be one of the worst bets in history to bet against scripture on an archaeological or historical point mm. because it's just and i'm just saying this like we, this continues 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 to happen one of the most recent examples of this is that the, the pontius Pilate, who you see in the gospels is as a roman he's a very important character oh he's this roman guy and he's this official and he's making all these decisions and for years this was a part of you know archaeological writing oh well you know but that guy doesn't exist we don't have documentation of him extra as if the bible doesn't count as a primary right. source well yeah first of all yes like the bible yeah anyhow let's not get into that but 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 you know so so oh we don't have extra biblical documentation so he's clearly just he didn't exist he's just a character that was invented for the gospels until all of a sudden we discover an inscription i believe in the caesarea philippi in israel but i could be wrong yes i think you're right yeah that. where we discover an inscription that says oh pontius Pilate," you know exactly <laughs> as in in scripture here is the guy here's his position that he had in his roman authority Okay, so this this has continued, continued to happen. And at this point, I kind of start laughing whenever anybody points out a certain biblical detail or historical archaeological detail that they don't find in the archaeological record because I just kind of start waiting. And in about 10 years or so, we're going to find this and, and then they're going to have to retract the papers quietly because that's just the trend that has, has happened. And the unfortunate thing is those people will never, that, that, that forwarded and, and taught and published and stood upon those ideas and made oh, yeah. money off of them. They never then come out and offer some big apology and <laughs> retraction. And they, they, they have the same attitude. They just go, well, I guess you're right about this one, but that doesn't mean you're right about everything else. It's like, all we've established is that you were wrong. How about a little, how about a little humility? <laughs> but I love what you're saying there, man. And, and, you know, God gave us a book. Right. He could have given us anything. He could have done anything to reveal himself. He gave us a book. Right. We know how to read books. You know, you read the Bible with, with special care, but in a, in a very important sense, you don't read it differently than you read other books. Like, it's not like there's a secret code to reading the Bible. You just take extra care to make sure you're doing a good job with it. And people will say things like, well, God is so vast, he could never condescend to human language. No, that's not true. I have children. They cannot understand everything that I understand, <laughs> but I'm able to communicate into a, to them in a way that they can understand. For them to take my words and then say, uh, he probably meant something else because he's so much smarter than me, and then do the opposite of what I said, that's foolishness. <laughs> because in, in, you know, 
in that idea is embedded, well, yeah, God is, is, too, is much bigger than words. Therefore, we have mandate to what? Go beyond them? God is not less than his word. Right. So don't you go beyond his word. You are the one that is inferior in this situation. So inerrancy, every word matters, yeah, right? Every a, word. It's a special kind of postmodern arrogance to start saying what you think God shouldn't, wouldn't, or couldn't do. I mean, I mean all, all the, the evidence of... <laughs> to presume. Yeah, the evidence of scripture itself, scripture's witness of itself, which by the way is a big part of, you know, inspiration and inerrancy. Scripture speaks of itself as inspired and inerrant. So that's important, right? If 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 you're going to read the document and say this is what I'm going to base my faith on, and it says something about itself, you you should probably believe it. But you know, so a big part of what you know Scripture is saying of itself, and the reason why we believe it is the evidence that we see is that the document is of God. The evidence that we see is that God did choose to communicate to us in this way. So to me, you 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 have the burden of proof that God didn't or wouldn't do something when I have the document laying in front of me saying that He did and would. You know, to me, I don't really want to have that argument until you can demonstrate some other big old proof saying, no, actually, it's some other way. I, you know, let's look at it this way. If you wanted proof of events that happened thousands of years ago, what kind of proof could you possibly hope for? Right. You would hope that people that saw it would write it down and that it would be carefully preserved. That's what we have. Right. How would you know the ideas that were taught and the revelations that God gave to people? They'd write it down. And that's what you have. Right. Sometimes you can work backwards and extrapolate. And if you realize, no, that is exactly what we could hope for and have, then it matters. And we ought to memorize and study and read and take great care with each one of these words. Yeah, I was about to say, so So, what's what do you think? Because I kind of want to keep going back. This is okay. So that's the doctrine. That's the that's the that's the what we understand about scripture, what does that do for us? I think what you said, it's it, if it's inerrant, that means we should pay attention to it. We should go through it word by word. We should, we should be willing to memorize it and focus on it as if it is actually accurate. What else? Pay attention when your preacher is preaching. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's proclaiming the word of God. Yeah. Uh, You know, the words matter. Don't come at it and, and try to bring up other words alongside it. I mean, it all kind of amounts to the same thing, which is a reverence for the word of God. But I would, you know, for myself, I say, well, I want to know what's in it. Right. I want to know what it says. If every word yeah. in it matters, I want to read all those words. Right. Not just let it sit there and say, I wonder what else is in there. <laughs> Have you ever, Zach, been corrected by the Bible by coming across a passage you didn't realize was in there? Frequently. And that you were wrong about something? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Read the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. ladies and gentlemen. So that's inerrancy. Now, we've already been touching on this some. Going on to the next one, this is very closely related. And this is what some people would rather say than inerrancy. Uh, but we would affirm both of these. This is the infallibility of Scripture. So to be inerrant means that every word in it is true and right. To be infallible is a little different, that every moral and spiritual claim is true. This is a subset of inerrancy. Some people say, I don't like that. I won't say every word, but every idea it communicates. Well, we agree with the words, but we also agree with the ideas that every moral and spiritual claim that the Bible makes is reliable, true, and, and you can set your watch and live your life by it. Yeah, this is what, I mean, obviously all of these are important, but this is one of the ones to me that's one of the biggest witnesses that Christianity is true, is if you could show me that the, the Bible is transcendent, if it can apply equally and, and authoritatively and everything to all different cultures and people throughout time, that to me is massive. 
And, and for example, if it wasn't, if we could demonstrate, yeah, okay, it's pretty clear here that this applies there, but it can't possibly apply over here, then that to me is, is a huge issue. But that's not what we see in scripture, right? We see that scripture is, is completely transcendent. Its ideas apply equally across, you know, any culture or any mm -hmm. time you want to look at. Um, and, and they hold up the, the, the moral and spiritual claims of scripture are true. Now you can disagree with them. You can say, I don't like them or I don't want to obey them, but you, you can't, you know, somehow point out that, oh no, that somehow doesn't apply here. Right. This is what we've already read in 2 Timothy, where he said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable mm. for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, training in righteousness. 2 Peter, right? Sit up and pay attention. It is sufficient to train us spiritually. We don't just have men's opinions here, which we already read in 2 Peter as well. We have God's opinions. So, all right, the stories. There are stories in the Bible. There's history, there's poetry in the Bible, but the lessons that you're supposed to learn from those are infallible, right. meaning it's moral teachings. Some people seem to think the Bible is all moral teachings. It's a lot more than that, although there's plenty of it in there, but it's a standard for us to follow. You were saying culture will change. Yes. Culture <laughs> has changed, and it's it's remarkable to see how, I'm, I'm going to use an inflammatory example, but I'm just using it as an illustration here. Uh, even five years ago, 10 years ago, but even less than 10, the transgender issue was not even being discussed or talked about. Right. Now there are countries assigning jail time related to this issue. The only point I'm trying to make is how fast culture changes. How one day one thing is true and the next day you're standing on the outside going, did everybody get a memo that I didn't get? Everything just moved. You know, there was a, a day, one day there was a Soviet Union and the next day there was no Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Like times change, people change, culture changes, but the word of God does not change. And that's why we need an infallible standard so that when we're tempted to go with the flow, we can hold on to the rock that is God's word. The wise men built his house upon the rock, right? And that, Jesus said, is the words of mine. And a foolish man built his house upon the shifting sand of culture and his own ideas. And this is important, right? If, if you, so let's say I'm not a Christian and you're trying to explain to me how Christianity works and what you're, you know, hey, you should be a Christian like me. Okay, so you're saying that I should pattern my entire life and also stake my potential afterlife on a book. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, well, it had better be an infallible book. It better had, be right. Yeah, exactly. That that book had better be able to actually tell me what I actually need to believe, and that had better be advice that that is good advice, that works, that is correct, that is moral and good, and, and, and also applies to my neighbor and my friend across the world. And if those things aren't all true, why would I listen to you and your book, right? If, if, if I can't trust that this, this instruction that's in Scripture actually is right and will guide me correctly, you know, we're talking about the way to be saved. Is the book right or not, right? right. It's very important. And that is the most important infallible attribute of Scripture, as we read, Paul said to Timothy, these scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Right. We're talking about heaven and hell now. We're talking about what happens when I die. What am I to do with all of the guilt that I carry around with me? The Bible presents what it calls the good news, the gospel. That's the Greek evangelion, evangelion, right? And, and you is the first part of that, like euphoria, it means good, and then Angelion is like the word angel or message. So the message of the Bible, the good news that we preach, that, that better be right. Yeah. And the thing is, it is right. 
And the Bible actually claims the exclusive right to give the truth. Yes. And this is something that I've actually heard people say, and this comes from ignorance, so it's hard to get angry, but you must say what is true. When they say things along the lines of, the Bible never claims to be the only way. Oh, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Buddhism doesn't claim that. Right. You know, Hinduism doesn't claim that. The Bible certainly does. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But those that don't, it says there's everlasting fire reserved for you. So the message that it teaches us of how to be saved is infallible. The story of Jesus Christ, I mean, the New Testament exists first to contain a record of the story of Jesus. That's why we have it in there four times. Right. It's four separate accounts, some of which seem to be at least dependent upon each other, but it's four different accounts telling the same story. And then a little bit of history would happen after that, a bunch of explanation of what it all means, and then what's going to happen in the future. And it's all tied to what came before that. The message that it's teaching is infallible. And if you believe that the word of God is not infallible, that it can be wrong, forget about dates and names and the numbers of people in the army, but that it can be wrong about its moral and spiritual claims, then, then you've got nothing left to stand on. Paul said, if, if all we have in Christ is hope for this life, then we're, we're pathetic people. Well, and, and this is something that we see in the church, and one of the reasons why we want to start talking about this and encouraging other people in it is, you know, these are very, these, these issues are not small issues, you know, no. uh, right? I can, I can, and we do believe, you know, we can disagree with godly believers about some of these issues, even though I believe they're grave concerns, <laughs> but we can disagree with them, but they're certainly not minor things. You know, no. you, we can come to the word and there are, gosh, there are godly, I mean, I, I kind of, it's a little sad to see it, but there are godly, wonderful heroes of the faith who have disagreed with us on these points, who have said, no, that's not necessarily true of scripture, but I, I'm here to kind of let you know that, that that's not a minor thing. I would begin to ask them, and I've often asked myself, if you don't believe, if you believe that you can walk with the Lord and trust him for salvation and read his book and, and, and hear what he has to say to you, but yet you don't believe that that book is infallible or, or, or in, inerrant. Might my, be wrong. Yeah, then my question, be would be, my question would be, why do you believe that? That requires an immense amount of faith to believe that somehow this book will get me there, even though there are mistakes in it. And and my other question is who decides then what those mistakes are because that yep, where right and there. that kind of leads into our next question but where are you coming up with the authority to decide which parts of the Bible now have error or, or which moral teachings of the Bible are no longer relevant and, and according to what standard and if it's the standard of cultural preference then I would kind of ask you who who died and made you cultural king yeah <laughs> who well, this is what always happens when you start to mess with the inspiration of Scripture we say look. It's, it's God's book, but God didn't really have any hand in it. I mean, it was people that made the Bible. So therefore, yeah, they're going to make mistakes because people make mistakes, right? But it's still good. But then the next step is to say, well, if they made mistakes about that, who's to say that they were right about everything? You know, do we really need the gospel? And, and people say that's a slippery slope. But y'all, it's a slope. We've watched people fall down for 2,000 years. Oh, yeah. You don't mess with this. It won't lead you astray. This is why we study it. It's why we learn it. Because it's not going to lead you astray. It's going to make you wise unto salvation. And this is, this is something important for us to know. That, as we said, culture has changed in many ways. Largely in its abandonment of scripture. And not using the Bible as a standard anymore. There are some that are wanting to revive the Bible as a kind of artifact. Yes, as we we yeah. We need the Bible <laughs> to, be, to, to be the glue for culture. But... You know, these these people have no intention of actually believing what it says. 
they think as long as we have this shared understanding, but if you think that it's wrong and it's backward and we still need to come at it, you're, you're right back where you started. But we believe that the Bible is infallible. And in fact, the Bible demands your submission to it. Psalm 119 verse 99, he wrote, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. The Bible gives you wisdom about life, not only how you live your life day to day, but what's going to happen at the end of your life when your soul is, is to be held to account. And, and it doesn't matter how smart somebody is or how many letters they have after their name or how many books they've written or read. If they don't trust the book, then you are wiser than they are in Christ Jesus. So the infallibility of Scripture, it's a subset of the inerrancy of Scripture. But I don't think you can maintain the infallibility of Scripture for long if you don't also maintain the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. We've already kind of moved on to the next one, I guess, right? We were just talking about the authority of Scripture, right? Yeah, these kind of flow together, honestly. And this is kind of like, I guess, the so what of this, right? Okay, so if you're saying that Scripture is inspired of God, if you're saying that it's inerrant, that it's infallible, okay, well, so so what? <laughs> that you could say all those things of a document that you kind of left sitting somewhere and said, yep, that's true of that. But what should that have to do with me then if those things are true? And that's where the authority of the Scripture is kind of like, you know, the practical conclusion of that. Right. The authority. And this is important. This is not one of the classic uh, descriptions of the, of the attributes of Scripture, but I think it needs to be included in the conversation more often. The Bible has authority over you and over me. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul says, it's the word of God. He says, what we preach, what has been written in the scripture. I mean, the apostles well knew what they were writing. That's a discussion for uh, for another time. Yeah. But, you know, Paul says that my gospel will be what judges people on the last day. Not that he made it up, but it's the one he preaches. That The Bible is the word of God. And therefore, it has authority over you. If God said it, you best do it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, New Testament Christians, don't get to chuck out the Old Testament. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, so Jesus fulfills the law, we don't throw away with it, but you can finally read the Old Testament correctly through the lens of Messiah Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill and establish the old covenant. There's going to be a new covenant that's made. And he says, if you relax any of this, you're losing status in heaven's eyes. That's, I, I think that constitutes authority, don't you think? Yeah, well, and, and like we've said before, this is something where the scripture refers to itself 
as authoritative. And, and you know, you see, like, uh, I forget whether it's Paul or Peter, but they're referring to one of the other apostles writing and saying they're using the word scripture, which is a very important word. It's not a word you throw around. They're using the word scripture of this other apostle's writings. Yep, so that that's, means that's that Second Peter three sixteen. He, yeah, so, he calls Paul's writings scriptures. Right. So in that, that means in that day of a contemporary, Peter is recognizing yes, what what Paul is writing is scriptural, meaning it is God breathed. It comes from God. So, so this is not something, right, that we're just, because this is what people will say too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those people wrote those things down, but now Christians want to come along and say that it's some kind of holy book. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah, it's they, always been authoritative. That's what they believed. So you can say they're wrong, but you have to be understanding that you're saying they are wrong because that's what they are claiming of, of the book. Yeah, the first book that was put together was the, the book of Moses, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it was explicitly written with yeah. authority in mind. Right. Uh, it was written so that the people would obey and keep it, and they were to memorize it, and the king was to write down his own copy of it so that he would remember it. It's the book of the law. Right. You know. So the Bible has authority over your life and mine. It's God's book. And if God has authority over us, and he does, then his word has authority over us. You, you don't get to get a, a letter from the president, let's say, or even the police station, you know, <laughs> giving you a legal command to do something, and you say, this is from the president. And you say, well... I don't have to do what this says. Yeah, you do. That The president said that. Well, this is just a letter. All this is is a piece of paper. This isn't the president. But it's got his name and his seal on it. He wrote this. Right. So you have to do what it says. It carries his authority. Therefore, the word of God carries the authority of God. You can't dismiss it. And there's so many ways where we want to do that. But if you've gutted the Bible, and to back up here, if you gut the Bible of its inspiration... You gut the Bible of inerrancy and infallibility. You've made it opinion, in which case it means nothing, unless you want it to, which means nothing. Because you're going to obey it as long as it agrees with you. And there there are countless Christians that do this, that they agree with the Bible up until they don't. They say, (laughs) I'm a Christian until I come across something Jesus said that I don't want to do. And then you say, well, you know, I believe that uh, we all have our own opinions. We've got to find our own way. Then you're not a Christian. You don't believe the Bible because the minute you disagreed with it, you went the other way. So what you're saying is, I agree with most of the Bible. That doesn't mean I believe the Bible. To believe it means you come across something you don't like, like turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and you do those things even when you don't want to. The Bible tells you what is true, not only on what you do, but in, in what you believe as well. Yeah, and, and you know that's that's basically it, right? And I understand that as you hear this, even this is this is a very old fashioned sounding way to look at the Bible. But Good. Yeah, honestly, like yeah, <laughs> I'm not even gonna complain about that. I, I I hate to break this to you, but you you if you are a Christian and you're listening to this, you are part of a supernatural and ancient faith. And if if that's not you know what you want, then I'm sorry, but this is what it is. You isn't that kind of cool though? Oh yeah, absolutely right. right. That, that old time religion. Who who wants a religion that was invented yesterday? And and we don't. That that's the point is that we don't and can't change these things. We do not innovate around scripture. Mm-hmm. We do not you know come up with a new spin on this. This is and that's honestly something that should be incredibly comforting to you as a modern person 
who's stuck in a modern world where everything is fluid and changes constantly and is dynamic. Scripture is not dynamic. <laughs> Scripture is what it is. <laughs> it's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And that's that is good for us. We to have an authority in your life to submit to that's infallible and inerrant and inspired of God, where you can check yourself and say, "Wait, I'm wrong. I need to be corrected." That is a beautiful thing and a good thing. So yeah, there's yeah, there's good it's stuff. It's so that comes needed. With this. I mean, yeah, even. The thing is, the Bible was written over a very long period of time. It was written over hundreds of years. It was progressive revelation. It was unfolding. So you can see certain books of the Bible were written to judge and correct the people for not holding to what had been written beforehand. Yeah, yeah. The prophets were written to judge the people for not keeping the law. And, and Jesus had so much to say to Israel about not regarding what the Old Testament said about him. In the, in the epistles, they're calling the people back to remember the gospel of Jesus and what the Old Testament said. And then even in the book of Revelation, it's all coming together. So just as the Lord held his people to account in the scripture, we who now have the entirety of it, you, you must believe every word in that Bible. You are required as a Christian to believe that it is true. You might not understand it right away. You will seek to understand it. Mm. But you're required to, to believe it. It's God's word. You don't sit in judgment of God. How dare you? So if it says, you know, that, that male and female, God created them, that you are obligated to believe that. You're then obligated to obey its commands. What the word tells you to do, you have to do. That's authority. If you say I'll believe everything, but the minute it starts telling me what to do, well, then I've just got a I've got a problem. Well, then you're not you're not in obedience to the word. You've got to actually do it. The Bible says not to be a doer of the word, or sorry, not to be a hearer of the word only, but a doer. So what good does it to read when Jesus said, "Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you," but then the minute somebody says something nasty about you on the internet, you just blow up in their face? <laughs> well, I know what Jesus said, but no, there is no but. You have to do it. The commandments only matter when it's hard to do them. Mm. If you've never come across somebody that makes you want to lose your temper, then the command to not let your son go down on let the sun go down on your anger hasn't meant much to you. But now you're furious and you've got to obey that commandment. But not only do you believe its claims that Jesus was the Son of God and the only way to heaven, and obey its commands to love your enemies, will you worship its God? God has revealed himself in the scripture. He is the one true, holy, triune God. And you're required to worship him. It teaches you how to know him. God has revealed himself in his word. Everything we believe about God is subordinated to the Bible. I already quoted from Mark 7, 7, that Jesus said that their worship was in vain because they were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Mm -hmm. Every other idea, every other philosophy bows to the word of God. Every lived experience that you've got bows to the word of God. You are to worship the Lord as he is given in scripture. And it is really tragic to me to see and hear so many talk about the Bible, but with no intention of obeying it as authoritative and no even apparent desire to know the God that is being discussed there. To talk about the stories of Abraham and David or Jesus and no desire to think, could I have an encounter with God like that? You can, but you got to come, like Jesus said, to take up your cross and to die to yourself and let the word sit in authority over you. That's why we preach it. That's why we 
we study it. That's why we have this podcast. And that is why when we rebuke and exhort and admonish one another, it ought always to be grounded in Scripture. Yeah, the Bible is the stand. I mean, the Bible is it for us. It's this. It's our standard. It's our way that we judge ourselves and judge each other, right? Um, and you know, I, I always love. There's a quote from James Boyce about Scripture that I I love. I want to read real quick. It says, "The Bible is something more than a body of revealed truths, a collection of books verbally inspired of God." And he's not saying it isn't those things. He's saying also, in addition, it is also the living voice of God. The living God speaks through its pages. Therefore, it is not to be valued as a sacred object to be placed on a shelf and neglected, but as holy ground where people's hearts and minds may come into vital contact with the living, gracious, and disturbing God. Hmm. And I love that quote because he... When, not to sit on the shelf. Yeah, well, and then I love that when he says it's the living, gracious, and disturbing God, meaning, yeah, when you read the Bible, there are going to be some things that trouble you. And that's all right. <laughs> if there weren't... Good. Do you think you're right about everything? Exactly. If there weren't, <laughs> right, then you maybe you should be worried about yourself, right? And that's good. That means we didn't make it up. It confronts us, right? And now we don't read those things. And, and I know sometimes Christians feel like that is they, they want to say, oh, well, I just, I can't even read that passage that Jesus writes about because it's just, it's too much. I can't do it. And so I get all discouraged. Well, listen, you don't have to go, you know, be in fear or be condemned, but you do, you should just look at it and see what it says, right? It's good that the Bible instructs us and teaches us and it's it's different from us. Wouldn't you be worried if your book that you're saying is going to get you to God tells you exactly what you wanted to hear and, and means that you're right all the time? Doesn't that seem a little bit suspicious, right? Yeah. It's not how the Bible is at all. Uh, man, You every time you read the Bible just about you, if you're doing it right, you're going to read something that you come across and say, wow, um, I'm that's not like me. Yeah, Hebrews 4.12, I referenced this earlier, but it says the word of God is living and active It's the only book that reads you back, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible will call you out, baby. It will look into your soul and cut you open like a scalpel. This is why I've used this illustration before. This is why grown men, hard men, will sit in church, hear the word proclaimed, and begin to sweat bullets and begin to weep and shout and fall on their knees because the word of God exposes them for who they really are. Isaiah 66 two says that God honors those who tremble at his word. That when you pick it up, it's not that you're afraid of it, but you just recognize what you've got in your hands. You know, like, like when Indiana Jones would pick up one of those ancient artifacts <laughs> and trying to be so careful with it. Now, the Bible's not a relic. It's not magic, but recognizing that what is in it is holy and it's powerful and it will change your life. So if you believe all that, you need to read it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all right. Read your Bible. Yeah. I've heard it since you were a kid, but do you do it? That's kind of like saying, oh yeah, everybody always says brush your teeth. Well, do you brush your teeth? Because you, you should. <laughs> Mom always said, my parents wouldn't leave me alone about it. Well, were they right? Then you ought to. Don't just read it though, study it. Mm. Try and seek to understand it. I, that's I my opinion. There's few things more fun than chasing down an idea in the Bible and trying to understand it. There's no better feeling than when everything just sort of clicks into place. You can feel it thud and you go, now I understand. Memorize the Bible. Learn some of these verses so that they just roll off your tongue and, and preach it. For those of you that are pastors listening, those of you that are small group leaders listening or or those of you that go to a church and are, are trying to discern what, what ought to be done with the Bible, 
Our last reference I'm going to read today is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. See if this doesn't describe our times here. Paul wrote to Timothy some of his last written words. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So those are those words, right? Using the Bible to correct people. With complete patience and teaching. Teaching is really emphasized towards the end of the Bible. Why? Why is that? Because verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. <laughs> That's the charge and the warning. Preach the word because someday they're not going to want to hear it, but instead they're going to come up with their own ideas. They'll heap up teachers and people with PhDs. They'll found new denominations and write new edited versions of the Bible and write other books to add to the scripture so that it can say exactly what they want to hear. But we are not to turn away from the truth and go off into those myths. You know, Zach, interestingly enough, the Bible knew what a myth was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and tells us that it's not myths. It's history. It's real. It's, it's the gift of God given to us. So treasure it. Fight for it. And hold on to it with everything you've got. This is not just a theology lesson. This is a practical Christian living lesson. Read, study, and preach your Bible. As we always say in Calvary Chapel, don't preach about the word. Mm. Don't preach from the word. Preach the word. To use another common phrase we need to know, the Bible does not contain the word of God. It is the word of God. It's not encoded in there somewhere. It is God's very word. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative for your life and mine. So like that verse we read towards the beginning, sit up and pay attention to it. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. I mean, that that to me, if, if we can understand this, that that really does change and shape the way that we read and study the word. It changes the way I teach it. When I have the opportunity to get up and teach God's word, knowing these things changes the way I do that, right? And that's good. It should change the way that we approach the Bible. And so I'm, I'm glad that you guys have been able to hang out with us as we've kind of discussed this. This is a really great foundation for us as we're going to keep looking at some other things about the Bible. We're going to look at the canon of scripture and we're going to look at, you know, how to read it and study it and teach it and all those things. But we can't really get to those without understanding at a really base foundational level, what is the Bible and how do we have to approach it because of that. So this is a good foundation for us to keep on going. Yeah, you need to know what, what we believe about this, and I'm not shy about it. No. <laughs> so from this day forward, everything we talk about will be grounded in the scriptures, and we will only evaluate our own thoughts and ideas and opinions by the scripture. Every other theologian, every other pastor, every other philosopher or idea man in the world will be judged according to the scriptures, as we all will be on that final day, right? Yep. There's a reason we did this one first. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you again real soon on Ironworks. Yeah, we'll see you next time. We're talking about the canon next time on the Ironworks podcast. See you later.